Great. It's good to see you all. Um, if you don't know me, as John said, my name's Richard, and uh, one of the pastors of the church, and uh, um, I'm based down at our 502 sites where I lead that congregation, so I should probably start with, um, shall I just say, uh, it's just great to see you. It's great to be together this morning. The sun is shining. It's Mother's Day. We get to worship God in freedom. Isn't that good? We should really be expectant for what he might do and say amongst us this morning. And man, that community fun day sounds amazing. What a charge. I thought it was just going to be some bouncy castles, but wow. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I should probably start with a little bit of an explanation as to why I'm here, and probably an apology as well. So, um, Matthew, who leads this congregation, preached here last week. He's taken that message to preach at 5.02 this week, and I'm doing the reverse. So, um, can I just see, if anyone has any, was anyone with me at 5.02 last week? Just put your hands up for a second. Man, there's a bunch of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry, guys. You're going to hear it all again. But you know where my jokes are, so I want hearty applause and hearty laughter from you guys. But uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Morgan. Great to, uh, it's great to see you. And as John said, um, just to catch you up, if you're here as a guest or you haven't been around the past few weeks, we're in the middle of a, a five-week preaching series. It's called The Air That We Breathe, and it's based on this helpful book by uh, Glenn Scrivener, which came up on the screen, which John talked about, the one that's for sale. And uh, we're taking five, if you like, hot topics in contemporary culture, issues to do with personal identity and sexuality and justice and equality, uh, these issues that are really the, the kind of the heart of the hottest controversies and battles of our present cultural moment. And the claim that we make, this is what we're going to try and prove and unpack as we go through the series, the claim that we make as we look at these things is that everywhere and in every way that people respond to these hot issues of our time, it's actually a response to the Christian worldview that humanity is designed by God, created by God, and to be in relationship with God. And that this simple truth affects everything that we perceive about the world, and it affects everything that the world perceives about itself. And in that sense, Christianity is the air that we breathe. That's a, that's a huge claim to make, I realize, particularly if you're not a Christian. But that's the contention at the heart of this series, that there really is only one way to live this life right, and it's in relationship with God. And by implication, what we're saying that if this is true, then any other sort of lifestyle will invariably not satisfy the human heart fully, and it will leave us wanting something deeper and something more. Sometimes that's very obvious in your life, and at others, it's kind of tucked away in your heart, and you may not even be in tune with that reality, but it manifests itself in all sorts of other unhelpful ways by searching for this deep longing that we have for relationship with God, and uh, we try and find that in other things. I hope that makes sense. That's certainly the claim that I'm going to try and unpack today. And uh, specifically today, I want to talk about the issue of equality and justice. So much of uh, what we see in our culture is tied up in a deep sense that, of course, all people should be viewed as equal. I, I believe that, by the way, and I, I really do hope that you do as well, that all people are of equal worth. Different in many ways, of course, but equal in value before God. And 
The reason we've chosen this topic to speak about is because so much of the cultural narrative at the moment has to do with the assumption that not everyone feels this sense of equality in their own lives. For example, when we, when we wear armbands and when we wave banners and protest, when we take the knee before sports matches, when we strike from our places of work, when we demand to be identified a certain way, there's an underlying sense that my rights are not being recognized in the same way that yours are. It's a kind of cry of injustice. It's, it's people's way of saying, it's not fair that I don't have the opportunities that you do, or I don't get paid what you do, or that my identity isn't on par with yours, or that the people that I represent haven't been treated as fairly as you. It's just not fair. And this, of course, only makes sense when viewed through the lens of Christianity. You'll recall from previous work, weeks that uh, in a, in a pre-Christian world, ancient Greek thinkers, ancient religions, ancient cultures simply didn't see the world like this. They just recognized that some people were made stronger and better than others. Some were masters and some were enslaved. Men were above women and children had no rights. And pretty much every major society in world history was built on this understanding. Every major world culture was built on slavery, every single one pretty much. And so Christianity literally turns the world and the whole social order upside down as Jesus comes along preaching a message of salvation for all people, Jews, non-Jews, women, children, slaves, masters, anybody can have relationship with God and find their deepest sense of purpose. And even more than that, can have eternal life with God. Anybody. The Roman senator, the barbarian slave, street kids, lepers, prostitutes. That's the gospel. And this is true because all of us, all of us, were made by God as an overflow of his own loving nature. And in that sense, every single person was foreseen and planned by God and made by God and has this desire for relationship with God sewn into their heart. And in that sense, <laughs> aside from anything else, we do all stand equal before God. It explains why a healthy, loving relationship is so important to us and why so much pain in the world is caused when that is missing. And it's all rooted in this very simple verse in the very beginning of the Bible story. At the very beginning of human history, as, as God creates the universe and he starts the clock on time and he makes as the high point of all his creation, us, man and woman. It's a spectacular story. There's over 31,000 verses in the Bible, but right at the start, just 27 verses in, here's what we read. In the beginning, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is simply no other worldview or religion that makes this claim, this, this beautiful claim that you and I and everyone else throughout history was planned and loved by God and then made by God and made to be like God 
in relationship with God, man and woman made equally in his image. It doesn't say that men were made, I don't know, 60% in his image and women 81%, although if you've ever been to a men's locker room or been on a stag do, it might feel that way. But the, the beautiful truth of this simple statement is this, you and I are made by God and we're made like God. And in that we were made for all the things that he is, loving, relational, creation, creative, spiritual, and therefore we stand equal before God. That's the starting point. That's a stunning claim to make against the whole flow of human history, which until very recently would just not have seen the world in those terms. It was only in 1928 that women were allowed to vote in this country. The Children's Act only came into effect 70 years ago. But from the very start, we're told that we could and should have saved ourselves a whole lot of trouble and warfare and slavery and racism and injustice because all of us, without exception, were made by God, for God, and completely and equally in His image. And that our highest purpose in this world. The only way to live this life right and to run in the right lane and to avoid swerving off all over the place into all sorts of pain and, and relational and emotional dysfunction is to live for God and find our soul satisfaction, our identity, our deep relational need in Him. And it's therefore when we don't that we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. We see this all through human history as well. Tyrants, dictators, wars, enslavers, they all fail to recognize the simplicity of the creation story and the creation mandate for us to live in relationship with God and with one another. And so they went searching for this in other things, tragically often, often in, in, uh, in domination and abuse and injustice, because all of those things carry a kind of a veneer of achieving self-identity and success and power and the affirmation that is actually offered freely to us by God in the first place. And so when we fail to note this, we end up demanding rights from others that we shouldn't need to, and we feel an injustice in the world that we shouldn't need to, and we seek equality in the world that we shouldn't need to, because it was all given to us at the point of creation. All people, equally created by God. That's the Christian worldview. In that sense, there really is only one story across all humanity. It's the story of humankind made by God, loved by God to be in relationship with God. And every other story, every other life, every life story is simply a sub-story of that story. I love this quote. This is Antonio Martinez. He's a writer. He makes this beautiful observation. He says, the Western mind is like a tuning fork calibrated to one frequency, the Christ story you hit it with the right Christ figure, it'll just hum deafeningly in resonance. We'll see that a little bit later on as well. In other words, deep down inside, we're all searching for relationship with Christ. 
And in the absence of this, various issues and relationships and people and situations will offer a kind of resonance of what Christ offers. They kind of ting on the tuning fork and they bring something up in us, but they don't quite hit the mark. So we end up following that sound down a blind alley, searching for what we do think will satisfy us. But those things can only ever be, at best, a pale imitation of relationship with God, and at worst, a complete distortion of it. If I win this war, if I dominate this person, if I make this much money, then the world will recognize me and affirm me, and my life would have meant something. But at the point of creation, God says, I've made you, and I've made you to be in relationship with me, And I completely offer you identity and purpose and meaning and love and affirmation. So go off into the world and create beautiful things and form beautiful relationships because all of these things are like that tuning fork. They're meant to reverberate and remind you of and point you back to me and what I'm like. Now, as this pertains to the current cultural moments in which we find ourselves, I think There are some examples of how we attempt to express this as a society. They're not necessarily bad things, but where we also don't quite hit the mark. Here's here's an example. On Wednesday last week, it was International Women's Day, which according to the official International Women's Day website, is meant to be a global day for celebrating the social and economic and political achievements of women. And it also says that this day is a call to action for accelerating women's equality. Now, that's all good and positive stuff. I agree with that stuff. But it again asks the question, why do we so value equality? And the answer is Christianity. Throughout most of human history, to use this example, women have been unfairly treated, and for the most part, not regarded as equals with men. And that is because this is what nature without God teaches us that the strongest survive, that might is right, that as the ancient Greeks would have said, well, of course men are higher up the social scale than women, just as Greeks are higher up the social scale than other nations, and adults are higher up the social scale than children, and masters are higher up the social scale than slaves. That's just the way of the natural world without God, which makes it all the more noticeable that what Jesus teaches And what Christianity offers is a radical reorientation of social relationships in which we are regarded as of equal value, made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, highly favored. Christianity more or less kickstarts the human rights and human equality revolution. Hence, in terms of the equality agenda, Christianity is the air that we breathe. It's because of this that we have things like International Women's Day. The problem, of course, is that so much of the fight for equality nowadays isn't actually based on the sort of goodwill that Jesus commends, but it's actually a power struggle for rights, which is based on a foundation in our culture, and this is where we need to have our eyes open of increasing victimhood and grievance. That's why we take up arms. It's because I feel that I've been less equitably treated that I take up this cause. And then that becomes a kind of power struggle in and of itself. Whereas Christianity, whereas equality, as Christianity understands it, 
comes from Genesis 127, that we are all equal in the sight of God. And all people, male, female, regardless of age, nationality, race, do stand equal before God. And what has happened here is that this was distorted by sin, and it's been distorted as we've traveled culturally far away from God's ideal of how we should relate to one another. And the way to recover this church is not by the pursuit of power, but by the pursuit of humility. Just look at this for a power punch on this issue from Philippians 2. Verse 5 to 8, it says, In your relationships, that's you and me talking to us, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, to be grasped and snatched at. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And then, being found in appearance as an ordinary man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ accomplishes his mission, not by grasping for power, but by laying down his rights. And that's what this passage instructs you and I to do. So the, the positive message of equality, insofar as the Christian story goes, is that it's when we act with humility towards one another, taking the attitude of a servant towards our fellow man, not considering godlike status and domination and power something to be grasped and lorded over our fellow man, that's when we achieve equality. That's why the whole Bible storyline starts with mankind walking away from God, perfect peace, perfect relationship, and then Eden is lost, and the world starts to go to hell in a handbasket, and Jesus has to come and make that right on our behalf by his death on the cross. He takes the full force of the blow for us so that now we can live in relationship with God, albeit in a still pretty broken and messed up world. And at the end of time, Jesus returns to bring his people back into relational fullness with him. And he perfects and he restores everything that is broken. That final chapter in the Bible, by the way, in the NIV that we read, is called Eden Restored. That's the trajectory that we're on. The whole climax of human history is humankind dwelling with God, fully in relationship with God in a renewed earth. And in that place, friends, there will be no tears or war or death or racism or the endless, tiring fight for our rights because in fullness of relationship with God, all that we ever need is found in Him. And there is therefore no need for us to wave banners and protest and fight for equality and justice because before a loving God, we are all equal. We're all much loved and equally valued children of God. And so, the problem of the human condition which we need to resolve is this. We fail to recognize who we're made by and why. We fail to see that all that we need is found in relationship with God. And so, we start to look around at what others have got and what I have or haven't got. And, and we start to cry, it's not fair. They, they've got more 
And we get into a power struggle instead of adopting a posture of humility. And we forget that we are all equal before God. And we're all equally offered relationship with God. And so we try to find this and heal this inner ache for this by demanding it from others. But we are who we are. We are children of God. And so we'll never find it apart from him. But we still want the things that are deeply instilled in us, sewn into our hearts. We still want the things that are put into us at the point of creation. In other words, our, our culture wants the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God, but not always the king. And that's just not going to work. You simply cannot be the king or the queen of your kingdom of your own making and dispense of God and expect it to be like Eden, the place of beauty and peace where God came and dwelled face to face with mankind. We threw that off and we found ourselves in a bit of a pickle to say the least and now we wait in eager expectation for Eden to be restored. It's our only hope. Eden restored is our only hope. Relationship with God is our only hope. Jesus' death on the cross, which enables us for you, is our only hope. That's why he's called the Savior. Only he can save you. If God had wanted a, a mighty political uh, wrangler to come and make our situation right, he would have sent us a politician. John, Don Carson, who's a theologian, says if he wanted a comedian, he would have sent a comedian. He didn't. He sent a Savior to save you and me. Only he can make a way for a relationship with God. Only he points you to God. Only he is presenting you to God. Only he this morning prays for you and commends you to God. Only he says you are deeply loved by God, made by him, and not just with equal, but with incredibly high value. Your self-esteem, your fight for justice, your raging against all that is wrong in your life and your relationships and your emotions and the world. Shh, he says, I've made all that right. Just come to me and rediscover your purpose in me. We have the, the values of the kingdom deeply sewn into our hearts. That's what we're striving for. That's what our culture is striving for. But we need the king of the kingdom to realize it for us. We see evidences of this all throughout history too. These godly values for equality and justice played out all over the place. Christianity, rightly practiced, I would say, has been a significant force for equality and justice being established. When we fight for the values of the kingdom of God, recognizing that there is a king to be loved and followed, we see the abolition of slavery. We see the fight for civil rights being resolved in the USA. We see rights for women and children. We see equity between nations. Orphanages, hospitals, the abolition of workhouses for children, social care for others, all prescribed in the Judeo-Christian laws, all written into God's law for humanity, all placed into our hearts by our Creator. It's the only explanation for how we value anything else or anyone else at all. My shirt is probably worth about 15 quid, but if I told you that it was handmade on a sewing machine by Giorgio Armani, its value would probably change still just a cotton shirt, nothing in its composition has changed. That's 
just how it is. We assign value to things, not because they're made by certain elements, made of certain elements like cotton. If you cut me in half, cut you in half, we're made of the same stuff. But it's because of who they're made by and who they're connected to, their story, how their story interacts with your story. And that's the whole point. We, all of us, find ourselves one way or another in God's story, whether you like it or not, and therefore in each other's story, because we all originated from the same God. That's where we get our sense of value from. That's where we get our sense of equality from. It's all because in Genesis 1.27, we're told that we're made by God, male and female, made by God, equally made like God. It's the only explanation. It's why the Bible lays out instruction after instruction for how we're supposed to interact with one another. And let me tell you, if, if we did this, if we paid attention to the stuff, there'd be no need for placarding or taking the knee or trying to close the gender pay gap or lobbying parliament. In, in Ephesians 5, we get a list of what is known as the household codes. It says things like, wives, submit to your husbands so that your husbands can love you and protect you and even give himself up for you as a demonstration of what Jesus has done for the church. There's no sense of domination here. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement because we are all equal in value to surrender to one another. It says, children, obey your parents, but parents, don't frustrate your kids. Help them to flourish in the way of the Lord. You'll all live much better that way as much-loved children of God. It says, workers, honor your bosses, and bosses, Treat your workers fairly. It never says open up pay divisions or dominate your wife and kids or enslave people. It also never says that we should fight for our rights since it assumes that we should be living like it instructs and therefore have no need to. The Christian worldview, therefore, is good news for the world. It's good news for a very, very fractured, angry, increasingly absurd world. It tells a better story of equality and justice. And so we need to tell the story that all you need is found in the place and the person from where you originated, God. There's one more Contemporary application I want to look at this morning. I really hope I get through this. I've really struggled to get through this every time I've thought about it or, uh, or, uh, or looked at it. Uh, I talked about this last week at 5.02, and I'd spent the entire week battling with, with whether I even want to go here because I know just how deeply this issue is felt, but I believe that we need to, partly because I care for you and I consider it my pastoral responsibility to talk about things that are sometimes hard to talk about, but also because I know just how deeply this issue affects some of you on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I want to honor you, and I want to communicate respect and love for you. And of course, I want to glorify God and teach the whole Bible, not just the things we find easy. So I came to the conclusion that I don't think I can shrink back from this one. And I only hope I don't offend anyone. That's really not my intention. But please do feel free to come and speak to me about this issue. I'm still learning myself. And I believe that this is a, a subject that we need to keep on the family table as we build God's family here at Gateway together. This issue is really at the very heart of this issue of equality and justice. And it's one that is both sensitive, but one that I feel a particular conviction to teach into. It's a few years old now, but... Um, I want to talk about the response to the death of George Floyd in 2020 that sparked the huge 
worldwide Black Lives Matter protests and which we now see embodied when sports people take the knee before sporting events in order to make the symbolic case for racial equality and justice. And the reason I'm super conscious speaking about this, but have chosen to this morning, is because I'm a white, middle-aged man who grew up in, as a young boy in apartheid-ruled South Africa. And whilst I was too young to do anything about that at the time, apartheid has left a very deep shadow over my country and has deeply shaped my own response to race equality. It would be impossible for me to stand here today and not say that I feel a profound sense of regret about the lives that were and are affected by the apartheid regime. I should also say how deeply a hatred I feel for racism, how much I detest it in all its forms, and I think we all should. And I think this is a matter that we should take very seriously. I've been very personally helped by the thinking on this matter by many of you in the church who've either experienced or continue to experience racial inequality in some way. One of my favorite things about being part of Gateway, I often say this, is how multicultural we are. I, I honestly believe that um, if we weren't as multicolored as we were, I don't think I'd want to be part of this church because I think we'd be failing to live up to what Genesis 1 tells us, that we're all made in the image of God equally and that one day Jesus is returning for a worldwide church comprised of every nation and tongue and tribe. And this has made me think ever so deeply over the years about the connection between what we believe as Christians and the struggles that revolve around matters to do with equality and culture as we see it played out when people protest or topple statues or take the knee or whatever. We should be rightly appalled at racism because it's a complete distortion of what it means that humankind is created in the image of God and equally valued and loved by him. And I will happily give the rest of my days to quietly building God's church here and dismantling the walls that prevent us from living out this wonderful calling of life in Jesus for all sorts of people from all backgrounds. We should really work doubly hard as a church and as a family to oppose and to avoid any form of separateness between us. We are the family of God. We are one body. We are one new person in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The death of George Floyd was tragic for all sorts of reasons. Any violent death is. But we should note also the extraordinary response that his death created when measured by other similar types of violence against so-called minority groups. And I believe, and for full disclosure, Glenn Scrivener makes this observation in his book, that it's because the death of George Floyd strikes such a deep chord in the human heart and points us to a similar story that's embedded in all of us. George Floyd said these words 27 times in nine minutes while a police officer held him down by digging a knee into his neck. He said, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. 27 times in nine minutes. And then he died. And then millions around the world marched, chanting, I can't breathe. And the point Scrivener makes, and 
one with which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that the reason this tragic story affects us so deeply, in spite of all of its racial tragedy and the necessary truth that, of course, black lives do matter, is that it also points us to another story, a story of a man on a hillside in Jerusalem in the first century, held down by oppressive authorities, an unarmed victim suffering a public and humiliating death, who may just as well have been uttering those words, I can't breathe. Remember that Martinez quote from earlier on, the Western mind is like a tuning fork calibrated to one frequency. It's the Christ story. If you hit it with the right Christ figure, it'll just hum deafeningly in resonance. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to us. Why on earth would he even do that? It's because he loves us. It's because we were made by his Father out of sheer love. And just like any father who desperately loves their kids, he will do what it takes to protect them, to protect us from harm and to cover our shame and to bring us back from the edge of the cliff and to save us and to give us all that he has. And his death on the cross, the brutal, shameful, humiliating, excruciating death, even that word excruciate, it's a Latin word for of the cross. That death, thirsty, in pain, separated from God, was solely and 100% in order to take away our wrongdoing and to restore to us the potential for what was uttered and originally intended in Genesis 1, made equally in the image of God, for relationship with God. That's it. That's the whole shooting match. That's the gospel. We were made by God, for God, and it's only through the death of Jesus and faith in him that this is now possible. That's what all of us who are part of the church have declared over the years. That's what millions have declared over the years. That is what is on offer today. You can fight and placard and struggle and strive for peace and love and acceptance and affirmation, and then you can die, or you can simply come to Jesus today, who invites you close and affirms you. On the cross, he, he didn't breathe so that you could. He died so that you could live. Listen to what he's done, especially if you're not at peace with yourself or with others or with the state of the world today. This is Ephesians 2.14. It says, For he is our peace. He who has made the two groups one brought one new community together and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has done, friends, what is necessary to bring down the wall between us and God and between us and each other. And his offer of life and relationship with God is on free offer to you today. This is the story that our world needs to hear. This is the story that our heart needs to hear. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to take communion together. King Jesus, I, uh, I, I just, I, I, it feels like the word thank you isn't enough to express how I and we should feel about the cross, your death, your sacrifice for us, removing us from a place of death 
not close to death, but the Bible says death, into a place of life and wholeness and healing and relationship with God is the greatest gift. And for this, we are grateful. And I thank you that you now promise that you're our peace and that you have pulled down the wall of hostility between us and God and between us and one another. Jesus, I pray that through your work in our lives, through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, that we would live this out, that we would remember that we are equally created with high value in the image of God, to be in relationship with God, and that that's how we need to see one another, and that's the message that our world needs to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep conviction to believe and to tell this story. Jesus, we, we thank you and we glorify you. Amen.